welcome to this Latrobe Asia book launch of uh, Ed Kavanagh's book, Divided Isles. Uh, this is a great opportunity to celebrate a book. Writing a book is a wonderful achievement. So congratulations, Ed. It's great to be here with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Beck Strading. I'm the director of La Trobe Asia, and it is my great privilege to welcome you to this event. Uh, and I would like to uh, pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the land, uh, the traditional custodians of the land upon which we are meeting uh, this afternoon, and pay my respects to any Indigenous Australians who might be joining us here in the room or online. Uh, so the way that this book launch is going to be structured we're going to hear from Ed first up, who is going to um, show us some slides and some pictures and explain to us a little bit uh, about the main argument of his book. And we're also joined by uh, Diane Hu from the University of Melbourne, who is going to join us for the second part of the launch, uh, where we will have a little bit of a panel discussion. And I've got some questions uh, for Ed and for uh, Diane. And then we're going to have a Q&A session in the last 20 20 minutes or so uh, of the event. So for those of you who are joining us online, you can put your question uh, using in the chat function uh, and it will be a great opportunity to ask Ed questions about uh, the book, about Solomon Islands, about, um, you know, Pacific and Australia and China relations more broadly. Uh, and then after that, I think we might have an opportunity uh, for Ed to sign some books. So we have a number of books up the back there, um, and I'm sure that uh, you'll be happy to sign away after we close the session today. So, uh, Ed, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I might invite you to the stage uh, and I'll pass you the microphone and you can take it away. Very much. Uh, thank you, Beck. Um, it is really great to to be here. Um, and as I was saying, you know, it's quite un, uh, surreal and, and strange to have this project out in, in the um, in the real world. So, um, and sorry, I'll just be able to ask for the slides to change stuff for me yeah. too. Great. Um, so, thank you all for coming, everyone. It's um, really uh, great to see you here, um, and to all the people online, it's great to see interest in this topic. Um, I just wanted to to start. My name is Ed Kavanagh. I'm a um, I'm a researcher, journalist. Um, I work for an organisation called the McKell Institute as well, um, and uh, I'm here today to obviously talk about Divided Isles, this uh, book about Solomon Islands and the China Switch, this remarkable event that happened a few years ago, and it's um, pretty pretty incredible aftermath. Um, I just wanted to start firstly by thanking. Um, uh, Chris, though, who's here, Chris from Black Ink. Now, about 18 months ago or so, um, I sent Chris a, you know, half-baked pitch for a book idea around this um, issue I'd been reporting on as a journo for a couple of years. Uh, and to my surprise, the phone rang and he basically said, sure, go for it. Um, and it was a, a shock and a, and a kind of really um, pleasant surprise in many ways. But um, I really appreciate the way that Black Ink has um, I guess accepted this story and worked with me and put faith in me to, to tell it, um, but also uh, just having the courage to tell important stories from this part of the world, which um, really the reason for doing this book was that a lot of people know about the Solomons, a lot of people talk about it in this broader international context. Fewer people are kind of uh, learning about the stories of real people on the ground and really understanding the place with any um, great detail. Um 
I also just want to thank Chris for the record as well, Denise O'Day, the editor at um, Black Ink who worked with me, and she kind of turned these midnight screes of mine into something somewhat legible, which was um, really a pleasure to, to see, and it was great to work with her as well. Um, now, of course, this book is about this event, the switch, this very consequential um, sort of geopolitical event in our region, um, which, uh, you know, has captured a lot of media attention over the last few years. Um, but I just wanted to start, if we could just go to the next slide, um, just with a bit of a comment on Solomon's more broadly um, before I get stuck into some of the geopolitics. And that is that we often talk about this part of the world purely through this sort of distant geostrategic lens and that's all good and well, um, but Solomon's is, you know, much more than that. It's a truly remarkable place. This is a photo that um, was taken in a village called Dala in Central Province, and it typifies the sort of extraordinary scenes that you see all the time travelling around this part of the world. It's truly, you know, one of the, the joys of my life having to be able to travel around Solomon's for the last few years, piecing together this book and others. Um, if we go to the next one. Um, but that being said, the place is really acutely challenged as well. Um the, these are a few pictures I've just taken around to reflect how how difficult life can be for everyday people traveling around Solomons, living in Solomons. The um, picture up on the top left there is of the main road that connects two communities in Malaita, um, and it's completely broken. It's basically impossible to use. The uh, The bottom photo there is of the major hospital on the island of Malaita, this place called um, Kule Ufu, Ufi Hospital um, serves a population of 200,000 people. It's sort of rusting and decaying. It's got huge issues. And then there's a fun little image of me traveling around with some some folks on the back of a truck, which is pretty much um, the only way you can get around half the half the country. Um, so it's a, it's a remarkable place. It's a beautiful place. It's much more than its geopolitics, but um, it's certainly challenged. Um, go to the next one. Thanks. Um, so I just wanted to start with... You know, I wrote a book called, uh, you know, Solomon Islands and the China Switch. You know, what what is the switch? What are we even talking about here? Um, so back in 2019, um, Solomon Islands uh, Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare um, made this decision to end a 36-year relationship the country had with Taiwan. Um, and in doing so, extended diplomatic recognition to China for the f country's first time. Um, now, on the surface, that can seem somewhat innocuous, uh, you know, Every other country almost in the world, apart from about 10, has done the same thing. Australia did the same thing in 1973, the US in 79. You know, so why is this such a big deal? Um, but in the Solomon's case, there was something different that happened. The the process that led to it was was really murky. It led to all this controversial um, activity in the sort of months afterwards and in the lead up to it. And it was also seen as reflective by so many people in the country of the fact that the you know elite decision makers in Honiara simply ignored the wishes of the rural majority, um, particularly on the island of Malaita, where people had this sort of innate and historic sense of being, you know, left behind and ignored and all that sort of stuff. And so, what happened very quickly was um, the switch became sort of grafted onto these existing social grievances and fault lines within the country and then became this vehicle where certain political actors, dissidents, even people from outside the country, you know, took advantage and saw opportunity. So this is just for those who are less familiar um, uh, with Solomon's. Where this story really unfolds is um, where I've spent most of my time is between these two islands. So obviously Guadalcanal, very famous place where the capital is, and then um, Malaita, and particularly a lot of the reporting for the book took place in that northern half of Malaita. Um, just to the next slide, thanks. 
Um, so today I kind of wanted to run through, I guess, you know, why I actually wrote this book. And then I'm going to tell a few stories that reflect the, those sort of points um, and introduce you to some of the colourful characters of the book um, that I think, um, uh, yeah, uh, were kind of a joy to report on but really reflect just how remarkably diverse and complicated the country is. Now, uh, I got to this story in a kind of unusual way. I um, am a, a journalist and a researcher um, and I actually back in 2019 pitched a story to The Guardian um, on a completely different issue, uh, some sort of wonky uh, policy issue and ended up um, uh, getting rejected, as happens all the time when you're a freelance journo. And then I was surprised a couple of months later, um, the editor called me up and basically asked me to get on a plane, go over to Solomon's and tell a detailed forensic on the ground story of this thing called the switch. So, I, you know, off I went. Um, at that moment, there was this huge sort of flurry of international commentary and activity um, from, you know, commentators talking about the geopolitics, as I was saying, which is fair enough. But there hadn't really been that on the ground analysis about what's going on, what are people, what's happening to real people. Um, and when I rocked up, there was like some very clear things that hadn't been talked about in much of the international commentary or coverage. And one was that, you know, the switch wasn't some distant geopolitical thing. It was impacting real people and disrupting lives on the ground. And the second thing, there were, you know, very savvy political actors and including these agitators and aspirants for various things that saw in the switch this opportunity to um, to achieve their own ambitions. And then, of course, the thing that's, you know, frustrated a lot of Pacific watchers and um, particularly the scholarly community that, that uh, intimately follow the region was some of the commentary that was happening around this was literally just like factually wrong and it was based on, I guess, external narratives of the, the region that didn't actually align with what was happening if you just rock up and ask people. Go to the next one. So I just want to talk about some of these stories and some of these people, how this actually worked and how who this was in, impacted. Now, this bloke on the left, um, he's called Misak. Uh, he was one of the first guys that I went and spoke to after the switch happened. He looks pretty chipper there, but he's um, he, he was anything but. He's a um, guy who his job was to run this Taiwanese-funded farm. Uh, Taiwan had all these fa farms funded all over the country. And um, uh, overnight, literally when the switch happened, he was out of a job. No idea what was going on. Um, no idea if the job was going to continue. Patricia over here on the right had a probably even more extraordinary story where her daughter was um, a student who had a scholarship in Taiwan. She was funded by the Taiwanese government. Literally overnight, the scholarship was terminated. So she was caught completely adrift. Um, I stayed in touch with Patricia in the years ahead every time I've been to Solomon's. And she's a remarkable woman who spent um, uh, basically all of her spare time uh, setting up a watermelon farm in the middle of nowhere. She grew watermelons and basically moonlighted as a farmer in addition to her normal job to save up enough money to put her kid through school. Um, so these are some of the people that were immediately caught in the fallout. If we go to the next slide. Um, but the story uh, really talks about how a lot of these actors within Solomon's saw the switch as this remarkable opportunity to achieve uh, some pretty uh, ambitious uh, and bold claims, bold, bold uh, objectives. And the book charts a few of them, and I'll run, I'll run through a couple of these case studies. But the most remarkable, I think, in my view, is the emergence of this organisation called Malaita for Democracy. We have here the sort of 
um, proponents, uh, leaders of this organization, some pretty colorful characters, this guy called Noxley Yatu and Richard Alita. Um, when I first got on the ground to report on the switch, I, I went straight to Hauke, straight to Malaita, and it was just a few days after there'd been this huge protest that had broken out um, opposing China effectively. And it was soon clear that it was organised by these two guys um, and it was organised with quite a degree of sophistication. And what they'd been doing is they'd sort of seen this opportunity in that grievance around China to um, advance their own big, bold sort of project for Malaysia to become its own country, to protest against um, the national government and to really exert their own authority as two pretty ambitious um, political actors in their own right. Um, they use that power over the next few um, months, and I'll just go to the next slide. Um, so early in, in those first few weeks after the switch happened, um, they uh, Malata for Democracy basically put a whole list of uh, claims and um, policies to the Malaitan provincial government, which at the time was sort of grappling with how to deal with this um, China issue. Uh, and within a few weeks, um, they had actually put forward this thing called the Aoki Communique, which... Uh, the Malaitan government signed and it bound the Malaitan government to this position, which was just uh, to, to basically not deal with China at all, not receive any Chinese investment, all this sort of stuff. Um, now, the Malaitan government certainly signed on to it, but this was driven by a protest group who had emerged sort of almost out of the ether um, and had, you know, seen themselves calling the shots. If we can go to the next slide. Now, the book sort of charts the rise of this organisation all the way to this you know, pretty alarming moment, um, which was the riots a couple of years ago. Everyone's seen that on the news. We had, you know, Australian troops deploy after this um, Malata for Democracy organised protest um, descended into really horrific violence. And there's still damage even today that the, the town hasn't um, town hasn't really recovered. So it's a, it was a pretty tragic event, but that was the sort of apogee of the, this organisation's uh, power. Um, go to the next slide, thanks. Uh, the book also talks about the story of a few politicians who, in the same way, acted very cleverly to, you know, capitalise on the opportunity of the switch and advance their own interests to become, in some cases, internationally significant, these important figures. Um, this was characterised, of course, by this uh, uh, gentleman on the left, Premier Daniel Sidani, but importantly also his key advisor, this man named Celsus Talafilu. Both like really lovely guys to to speak to and hang out with, very ambitious, um, very calculating. Um, Premier Sidani, five years ago, ran a small construction company. Um, he was a school teacher. He was a regular guy. He put his hand up at uh, 2019 provincial election, won his uh, constituency by nine votes, and then through the sort of extraordinary machinations of provincial politics in, in the Pacific, found himself uh, thrust into the premiership of the country's second largest province. It was a pretty remarkable rise. And he uh, was a smart guy, but he certainly wasn't experienced in terms of politics. So he quite quickly actually uh, got this uh, gentleman, Celsus Talafilu, to, to join him and um, uh, figure out this very complicated political situation. And over the next couple of years, both of these um, men really uh, found in the switch this moment to amplify Daniel Sadani's, um, I guess, influence and power in the country. Um, he took this really impassioned position against China, lent into the popular position within Malata to do that, and in the process really became a, a figure of 
you know, effectively the de facto opposition leader in the country, but also a figure of international import. And, you know, I'm somewhat guilty of this. Every single journalist that went into the um, into the country basically did a beeline to Aoki, got the story with um, Daniel Sidani, and he, um, he became a, you know, pretty remarkable figure on the world stage, seen as this sort of bulwark against Chinese expansionism. So it was a pretty remarkable rise from a sort of humble construction uh, uh, business owner to uh, this sort of guy standing in the way of Chinese uh, control of the Pacific. Just jump to the next one. Now, what these guys did as well, which is really fascinating to watch, was they didn't just say they were opposed to China. They was actually developed a relationship with Taiwan um, in those couple of years, particularly during COVID. And this was illegal technically, but, you know, they did it anyway. And they um, actually received a lot of assistance from the Taiwanese in contravention of the new, you know, Sogavare One China policy um, during the COVID pandemic. And Every time a consignment of aid rocked up in Aoki, um, Premier Sidani held these public ceremonies where they, you know, have the Malayan and Taiwanese flags in front of piles of rice and um, it kind of went internationally viral and then angered the Chinese who would come out and say, you know, this is hurting the feelings of the Chinese people and all that did is just embolden them and embolden them and make them even more influential. So it's a remarkable thing to watch these guys navigate the politics of the switch to accrue extraordinary influence internally. Uh, just jump to the next one. Um, now, the story of the switch obviously can't ignore the biggest character in the country, which is the Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare. Um, I think one of the the, the the challenging things, but also the, uh, probably the more important thing I think that the book uh, offers is a pretty forensic uh, biography and background of, of this man. He's you know, arguably the most powerful leader in Solomon's since it became independent in 1978. Um, but he's also just a man of incredible political dexterity. He's been at a, you know, ride, rise and fall and rise and fall many, many times in the past. Um, but he's a guy who um, for years uh, has sort of been very uh, influential and central in Solomon's politics, but he's made mistakes and, and failed in time. So he's uh, currently on his fourth uh, term as prime minister, not successive terms. So it's the fourth time in the job. Um, he's lost the job three times in the past. He's uh, innately sceptical of Australia um, for various reasons, which maybe we can talk about a bit in the in the discussion. But um, he's had this sort of long-held scepticism of Australia, of Australian intent. Um, and despite the fact that a lot of commentary kind of just ascribes the, like basically claims that Sogavari is the architect of the switch. That's not really quite what happened um, when he assumed power in uh, April of 2019 again there was a pretty large rump of MPs who wanted to uh, shift towards China they actually um, threatened him with a motion of no confidence if he didn't go that way and he sort of lent into it so he's certainly sympathetic towards the China switch he's not a not enough you know didn't come out of the blue for him but um he wasn't necessarily the architect but he did capitalize on it with extraordinary um, creativity. You know, within years, he was standing next to Joe Biden. He's, um, you know, obviously embracing Albo there pretty passionately, I would say. But um, uh, what this whole switch did was it achieved a few a couple of things for him. One was it gave him the capital to pursue this pet project of his that he just desperately wanted to do for years, and that was the Pacific Games. So just like how China in 2008 wanted to have the Olympics to kind of show the world it was 
um, you know, had arrived. Solomon's um, and Sogavari wanted to host the Pacific Games uh, to make the same point, really, in um, in the Pacific. And they needed an extraordinary amount of money to do it. They needed a lot of help to do it. And the Chinese have provided that uh, in spades. So um, he's been able to kind of swim above this and really consolidate power and uh, realise his pet projects through the switch, which has been um, pretty remarkable to see. Um, if we just go to the next one. Um Another aspect of Sogavari that people don't talk about a lot is he is genuinely paranoid about his personal safety and security. When there was the protests in November um, of 2021, he got like within a whisker of being personally caught up in it and hurt. Um, the crowd spilled into the parliament. He got um, rushed out a back door into a car. They took him from the back hills of Honiara. He got out. He had to walk through to another one. All this, it was, it was literally a close call. Um, and he has a, a real genuine paranoia and concern about his personal safety, um, which he doesn't believe that local police have the capacity to, to, to look after him effectively. Um, now, when that riot happened, he called on this security deal with Australia. The ADF came within about 24 hours. But um, this is sort of, I guess, a novel argument within my book. I don't know if people made this point that much, but... I really think his concerns of his own personal security influence the thinking around the security deal with China, which happened um, a little bit after this. And part of that is that, you know, at the moment he effectively has on speed dial, if he does get into trouble, the ADF. And if they don't rock up the, the you know, Chinese military to help him out, if there's any unrest in, in Honiara. So, uh, you know, he's rather than sort of all of this being China pushing it on Solomon's, um, Sogavari has been very clever at sort of exerting his own influence uh, for his own benefit. Just pop to the next one. Um, and I'll just be quick because I've probably gone over time. But, um, yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> um, so the final point really of the book and something that I'm, I guess it's a bit more uh, critical of than other aspects of it, um, there were just so many illustrations over the last few years of this story being taken completely out of context or being put into a context that was ours, you know, ours as sort of Western observers, as observers that are kind of preoccupied with this China rise um, worry, which is, you know, a reasonable thing to be concerned about. I'm not saying that. But what started to happen was a sort of, uh, you know, cadre of like this sort of cottage industry of comment commentators popped up that would look for any micro event within Solomon's as illustration that, it was basically China pulling the puppet strings. And it just wasn't really the case of what was going on on the ground. There's a great example um, of this, I call it the Bloody Ridge incident uh, last year where um, Solomon's is obviously a very important place in World War II. Um, there was, uh, you know, huge American and, you know, the, the basically the American victory in Guadalcanal set in train, their victory in the Pacific. It's a really significant part of World War II. Um, and they had an 80th anniversary event last year in Honiara. Um, and Sogavari didn't rock up. Uh, he, he didn't go there. And within about five seconds, there was this huge criticism from the international press and basically arguing that this was reflective of uh, his sort of innate, you know, hatred or, or to the West and all this sort of stuff. And um, fair enough to criticise him for not going, but it just didn't really reflect the reality on the ground. Um the, obviously, World War II is a part of our coming of age story as a country here. It certainly is in the US. It's much more complicated in Solomon's. Like literally every six months, people in Solomon Islands are getting um, 
killed by unexploded ordnance, it still litters the country. It's still a live issue. There's still people that look at that conflict with with pride about how Solomon Islanders were, were um, uh, you know, helped the West there, but certainly with sort of anger that a lot of the aftermath of it just simply hasn't been addressed. So, you know, sometimes we, we can kind of look at incidents like that and say it's perfect illustration of Sogavare sort of, I guess, um, uh, wanting to poke out us in the eye or something like that. But it just, in this case, it wasn't true. But this became really a, you know, a really major talking point about his motivations. And it was, a, I think, a, you know, reflective of, of the way that we mischaracterize things. And even if we uh, le- can be legitimately concerned about some of the activities that China are doing there, we need to be accurate as well. Um, we'll just go to the next slide. Um, and just, just to wrap up, this is... Um, probably one of the more interesting aspects of the whole uh, international sort of commentary on the switch. Um, uh, over the last couple of years, you know, as I was saying, there's been some interesting colourful commentators and characters that sort of found their way onto the onto this issue. Um, some of them, you know, work for the New York Times or something, that's all good. Some certainly don't, and they come from the sort of recesses of the internet, places you, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, just some interesting characters. And there's this... Um, a few of these these sort of quite conspiratorial uh, YouTube channels that, that that jumped onto the story, big big deal, right? Like it's not a people say weird stuff on the internet all the time. The difference was in this particular case, as this uh, one commentator called Chris Chappell, I'll probably end up in um, one of his videos at some point, but um, <laughs> basically, you know, was followed this story intimately. Uh, he. Um, uh, kind of lionized Daniel Sadani, which is, you know, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but it was a, he really caught on to every aspect of this story. Um, but then he actually got involved in it to the extent where he used the Daniel Sadani story to fundraise a lot of money for himself, for his organization. And he actually funded um, both Sadani and Talafilu to go to the US earlier this year. Um, and not only did the Solomon Islanders uh, find their way into the halls of Congress, so too did this YouTube, you know, conspiracist who managed to leverage this story of uh, this remarkable story from Solomon Islands, places that had no evidence of ever being, uh, all the way to the point where he personally was testifying, you know, as <laughs> with authority uh, in the US Congress. So just remarkable the sort of characters that popped out of the, out of the ether into this place. So I'll probably um, uh, leave it there. We can get stuck in... Um, but maybe just pop onto the last slide just for a couple of couple of final points. Now, I just want to, I guess, wrap up by saying, you know, Divided Isles, this book, it's it's not a policy manifesto. It's not a sort of how-to, what should Australia do? It's really trying to be literally a story of what's been happening on the ground over the last few years and trying to amplify the voices of real people. Um, but I think, and we can we can have a chat about this um, in the Q&A, but there certainly are some lessons, I think, that can be learned about things that we can improve. So I'm happy to get stuck in there, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Thanks. Thank you so much, Ed. Now, I'll invite you to take a seat, if you don't mind. And, Diane, if you want to join us on the third uh, chair, uh, and I might just grab uh, this extra microphone here. I'll give you the proper microphone. Thank you. I feel like the author deserves the the proper (laughs) microphone. Um, But, yeah, I just wanted to to pick up on uh, a few points that that you've raised, but also talking about your background um, as a journalist. I mean, it's very clear, and and as a, a researcher, I mean, it's very clear that you spent uh, quite a lot of time on the ground for this story. Uh, And 
I guess coming from a kind of uh, an international relations perspective myself, there there seems to be a a tendency in some of the debates um, in Australia, particularly those that are forwarded by the sort of the the national security community, a a tendency to explain uh, Pacific politics in terms of elite capture. Mm. This idea that one of the big security concerns that Australia has is that elites within other countries are going to be captured by the Chinese Communist Party. So this idea that um, poor governance or weak institutions uh, and, um, you know, leaders are able to uh, to kind of capitalise on some of these governance issues uh, and choose to side with um, China because China might offer more in terms of their personal interests, uh, which strikes me as a bit problematic given Australia's own reputation uh, in some of the, you know, particularly I'm thinking of the recent news in Nauru uh, and payments to politicians in Nauru around Australia's refugee policy. And you mentioned the scepticism towards Australia uh, in some of your conversations. My concern about the elite capture argument is that it tends to erase the agency of Pacific Island countries and it tends to underplay the sense in which leaders are able to leverage strategic competition to their own ends, not just personal ends, but also to the ends of of the nation. So I would like to sort of unpick your view on this particular issue. Yeah, look, it's a a great point. I think... um, there, there is a degree of elite capture that does happen. Like there is, it's not, it's not like it doesn't happen. I mean, and in the Solomon's case, um, you know, Sogavari has been extremely sophisticated in, in sort of navigating this and being in control of things and demonstrating agency, etc. There is certainly, you know, live corruption. There's dark money in the country. There's um, certain people potentially within his his cabinet and with the, the his broader supporter network of MPs that have been. You know, uh, there's some pretty interesting allegations around corruption and things like that. So there is a degree that occurs, but the the broader, broader problem we have is yet yeah, where we articulate every single incident as as if it has been um, ordained or sort of uh, orchestrated by an external actor, and that just simply is is not the, the reality on the ground. And that's kind of one of the aspects I wanted to point to here. And like. I um I do worry about certain things that the Chinese government is doing in the region. Like I'm, I'm not um coming at this from a position necessarily as like a China you know dove quote unquote. It's just that the reality is that not every single thing that occurs on the ground is is being influenced by them. Sometimes there's invitations um, for certain you know approaches to do things that benefit a leader like Sogavari, and and often he's actually the one in the driver's seat. So I guess just following on from that, I mean, that, that gets to this idea that there is a, a, a tendency to misread the, the sort of domestic political situation, what's occurring uh, to shape decision-making in Solomon Islands, but also in, in other uh, countries. But I guess I'm curious to know then what is the major implication of that misreading? For if we, if we sort of think about it in terms of Australia's foreign policy, um Okay, so maybe there's this misreading, but what does that actually mean for Australia's approach to the Solomon Islands and yeah. to the, the broader region? Yeah. So I think um, something that we do a lot is basically play whack-a-mole with an issue. So um, a lot of people, a lot of people in the Australian government are, you know, genuinely worried about 
the way that Solomon's is going and the way that Solomon uh, that Sogavari is sort of consolidating power, embracing China, et cetera, et cetera. Fair enough. But the approach often isn't to kind of reinvigorate or rethink our aid program or do something necessarily different. It's to chase individual pet projects and support this and try and just placate the individual um, instead of thinking deeply about, okay, you know, this guy's relatively set in his ways. You know, he's been around, he's almost seven years old. He's um, kind of been in the picture for a long time. He's, uh, you know, unpredictable to some degree, but he's kind of predictable in his unpredictability, you know. Um, and I think what the, the, the misread leads to is instead of thinking, okay, let's um, just placate this immediate interest of this leader here and there, we need to be thinking about, okay, how do we, how can we actually be very creative and gen- if we want to be the partner of choice, you know, in, in the region, how do we actually demonstrate that? solve problems that no one else is doing, try and uh, improve our reputation and our brand for an emerging generation of people in this part of the world instead of necessarily just trying to react each day to the uh, to the whims of one individual leader. Yeah, so um, one of the interesting things that you're, and, and this is certainly something that I found quite interesting and useful, is that it documents this kind of settler colonial mindset in Australia. Um, and, and, you know, part of the, the issue... I, I think in, in the broader conversations that we tend to talk about the Pacific without necessarily including the Pacific. But you'll notice that in this event, we don't have anybody on the panel talking from a Pacific perspective either, which doesn't really meet our own personal standards here at Latrobe Asia of wanting to include those voices. And it's not that we didn't try. We we saw a lot of people and there was timing issues and there were, the, there were all sorts of issues, um, but we couldn't uh, actually find somebody to, to come and talk tonight. Um, and, that, and that's not saying anything about your book or you or anything like that, Ed, uh, but it's it's more a question of how do you ma- manage that positionality as a journalist, as an Australian journalist, writing about um, a- about a particular country? And you've done the work, and you're you, you know you, you you're on the ground. You've spent a lot of time talking to people, but then you know pursuing this sort of sol- um, settler colon- you know argument about settler colonialism and, and that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, uh, you are obviously an Australian journalist writing for an Australian audience. So how do you grapple with the complexity of that? It's a good, you know perennial question. Like any, you know. I'm just a guy from Adelaide. Like, what, why am I writing a book about someone else's story? Like, it's a very reasonable thing, and I talk about this in the in the book. I'm, I sort of grapple with this sort of point. Like, like, is it really? Am I really in a position to do this? Is it even the right thing for someone like me to be telling this story? Um, part of it is part of the answer to that, I guess, is how the book sort of came to be, which was that um, it wasn't necessarily five years ago. I thought, you know. I'm, I'm going to do a book on Solomon's. It was this sort of amalgamation of stories that I kept writing, and I happened to be in the in the in the right place in in some ways. Um, and then it became sort of a enough material that I thought was worthy of of putting together into a book. But part of it as well was while there's like a really robust domestic journalism sort of universe in Solomon's, a lot of this international commentary on the issue was as problematic as I was describing. Yeah. And this book's audience. Is certainly you know people like like those in this room, um, people in Australia, people in you know the sort of the the, the quote unquote West, I guess. Um, and it does amplify as much as humanly possible stories from real people on the ground, and um, so that's a, the, that was the sort of contribution I'm trying to make. But I completely accept that 
that dynamic, you know, there's a, a problem inherently with extractive storytelling with people just, you know, fly in, fly out journalism, all that sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm conscious of that. But I think on balance, it was an important um, story to tell. And the way that it's been told, I think I did as best as I possibly could to make sure that, that it did amplify real stories of real people. And I think the book is a testament to the fact that you are very clearly aware of the mm. kind of the concerns around extractive journalism. And I sure. actually also think that in, in some of the Australian security commentary, you get ideas about the Pacific from people who've never even been to the Pacific. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, in sort of wanting to explain the complexity of domestic politics, I think it's really useful to mm. enhance understanding of a particular country in the Pacific, which is also often treated as a as a region, um, rather than really diving into specific countries with specific personalities and interests and so on. Totally. And just ignoring sometimes how diverse even individual places are. And, I, like, the first couple of chapters of the book is, like, this sweeping, I guess, history of the uh, and geography of the, of the country, which is just, you know, it seems small from a distance and you pop your head in there and you suddenly blown away by the vastness and the complexity and that's just one country there's you know many more in the region so yeah well if i can uh invite diane to the conversation i mean it's really um you know i just wanted to ask you more about how the pacific um is playing into these broader narratives in australia about china and the the sort of this um the, the conversations that we're having in australia about you know, what a rising China means to national interests and what you see the role of the Pacific being within those sort of narratives. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. So we need the microphone so that everybody can hear us online. Thank you. Uh, I just want to say that um, I really admire um, Ed's efforts on this book. I mean, just thank you so much. I even want to say that this is not only helpful for the Australian government, it's helpful for the Chinese government as well. <laughs> <laughs> to really uh, have these uh, on the ground observations and really very, very few people know what is going on in those countries. So they're really, really precious materials. Yeah. So, um, and also I'm a huge fan of The Guardian. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think as, as said, um, this um, whole Pacific Island country thing is very much of this China threat um, narrative and definitely fits into that and uh it's it's actually before uh the bri identified that the pacific island countries is on the extension the, the extension of the maritime silk road uh that's pretty much uh sort of enhanced that it's not just china's efforts in these countries but also really growing concern in australia that we have seen in the media about uh china's presence china's efforts in all forms of uh, in, uh, it's not just a foreign aid, but also a lot of investment as well and a lot of people-to-people -people connections in those places. So um, you don't need to really read the newspapers, but you just go to see Lowy Institute's uh, polls every year. Mm. You start to find that that's really extent that has stood out as a really story that the media try to tell to the audience and Lowy always captured <laughs> because that's how they work. They sort of uh, get the questions, they sort of shape the questions based on new stories. That's how they get their questions, the survey questions. So yeah, I mean, that pretty much already shows that. But I think the funny part I just want to add here is that 
um, because we did a survey with uh, with China in 2020 and all through to 2022 on um, sort of um, the similar question and at pretty much the same time with Lowy. And the funny part about it is so we got quite different responses in wow. terms of public sentiment. So if you look at Lowy's question concerning like, is there any room for Australia-China uh, collaboration in these countries? Or are you worried or anxious about China's, for example, uh, the military base in these countries? So we find a very, very high percentage of the respondents, like 87 or even 89 of them, would say that they're really worried. But at around the same time, when we asked the Chinese audience, pretty much the same sampling, over 2,000, about over two-thirds of them would say that we are actually, we actually support China and Australia, go together uh, in the Pacific countries in the forms of foreign aid and everything. So I think that's really a very interesting and sharp contrast between the two countries that in is, terms of public sentiment. Well, that, that is interesting. So uh, if I can um, ask you, Ed, I mean, there is a, a question about whether we've moved well beyond the the idea of Australia and China collaborating in the Pacific um, in things like development and foreign aid. Uh, but I wanted to go back to the point that you make about Australian scepticism uh, about Australia, um, in, whether it's in the Solomon Islands or the Pacific more broadly, because, you know, Australia, for all the talk with, about China's rising influence in the region, Australia is still vastly, you know, the, the, the main aid and development partner. Is that scepticism about Australia because... Australia has been so dominant in the region and, and might be seen as a bit of a, as the great power in that particular region? Or do you get a sense that um, that, 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 that scepticism is perhaps a bit deeper than that? Well, it depends who you're talking about sort of holding the scepticism. Um, there's uh, still a lot of, you know, public goodwill for Australia. A lot of people have, you know, really... Um, supportive of Australia, they feel very connected to it uh, in terms of just the public. Um, where a lot of that scepticism is held is within individuals like Manasseh Sogavaria who have been personally, um, I guess, aggrieved by past Australian governments and doesn't justify necessarily any of his future behaviour, but he certainly had in the past uh, interactions with the Australians uh, in, in some of his um, past times in government that completely changed the way he views Australia. Um, and you go back a little bit further, I mean, even um, so there was this, you know, 13-year peacekeeping operation in in the Solomons that Australia led. Um, there was one person who voted against that in Parliament, and that was Manasseh Sogavari. Part of it is he's just innately sceptical of foreign, um, I guess, activity and agents and international development and, you know, the IMF and all this sort of stuff. He's ideologically concerned about that. And he views Australia's behaviour as uh, often inherently self-serving instead of altruistic. Mm -hmm. So it means that he he just has this sceptical eye to Australian intent. Um, that's not universal at all. There's like a lot of goodwill, as I was saying, and Australia is by and, by and away the largest aid supporter, like a really indispensable part of the region. So now, it's not like Australia's sort of got a totally tarnished reputation or anything like that. That being said, though, there are just a few sort of long-running sores which we could, you know, lance tomorrow uh, that that we don't. And this is not part of the book at all, but a broader question around the Pacific. Part of the concern about Australia's role is like, you know, that we 
it's our relationship with the region is self-serving and one of the biggest sort of own goals we could have ever done is things like using Nauru and Manus to solve a problem, literally like calling those policies a Pacific solution. So we saw the region as a place to to solve Australia's problems instead of actually partner on collective problems. So there's stuff we can do to fix that, but there's scepticism there, but it's not universal. Yeah, so and I think we should never underplay the importance of individuals in politics, whether it's international or domestic. But um, Diana, if I could ask you, what in your view, I mean, what does China want from the Pacific region uh, and how do we know or how do we not know? I think the first thing I want to point out, which is really under-discussed here in Australia or any Western country, uh, is that uh, even until now, there's a huge controversy over whether China should invest so much ah. uh, in the Pacific Island countries. Uh, even the IR scholars in China fight with each other ah. on that um, quite openly. <laughs> uh, there are quite some IR scholars who would keep telling uh, the government that we are wasting money doing that. And for us, I mean, this, again, is something that is not discussed um, in the Western world that um, that we talk about that, sorry, we is a very interesting word. Yeah. So the Chinese uh, really talk a lot about all the kind of costs <laughs> that, um, that the government um, sort of has made uh, on trying to really limit the diplomatic space that Taiwan has in the international community. And likewise, if you uh, watch Taiwan, you find quite some Taiwan diplomats and politicians would joke on TV about their experience of trying to woo all these <laughs> the countries, all the crazy things they need to do <laughs> sort of, uh, to sort of, uh, yeah, win them. So I think that's something that is really, really important to understand is that both sides really have, in, have invested heavily <laughs> in this to trying to wing over. But then uh, back to what China wants from the uh, Pacific Island countries. Something that is very, very clear is really about geopolitics. And as as said, if you read the history of World War II, you understand how important Solomon Islands is. So that's, in fact, is a part of the stories of how the reasons many people in China are trying to drive the government to say, this is why we need to invest there. But I'd also like to know that um, China is also a country that where we see sometimes we see things uh, bottom up. So we do see, for example, uh, private businesses. We do see businessmen who have, um, for example, something that's really important to know, they said it before um, 2019, when Solomon Island countries established diplomatic relations with China, they were already um, like the largest trading partners, substantial trade relations. So trade investment so we really see people driving that and we even have for example think tanks or researchers who are trying to drive that narrative yeah thank you and then we've got about 10 or a bit over 10 minutes for q a so i'm going to invite people in the room here uh, to ask uh, a question of our panel I'm shocked and horrified that there can still be unexploded ordnance. Wouldn't a uh, concerted cleanup be a really good way to win favour with the younger generations? I think it would be. Yeah, that's a pretty reasonable idea. There, there is a lot of <coughs> activity to clean it up, but it's just not a not substantial. Four or five years ago, uh, or when, maybe more than that, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, announced this big UXO cleanup policy. 
and <clears throat> allocated two million US dollars to it. So the scale of the cleanup is just incredibly modest compared to the scale of the problem. And uh, really, like the stories, uh, I didn't mention this in the remarks before, but one of the stories around the UXO that was so remarkable is that there was this horrific case, and I talk about this in the book, this horrific case of a bomb blowing up at a barbecue, family barbecue, killed two young men, 25-year-old men or so, sort of in the prime of their life. Now, one of the kind of most important special stories around like the Solomon's history in World War II was this when JFK got rescued there. JFK got, I don't know if people are familiar with this, but when he was a world war, when he was a soldier, he um his boat went down. He did this sort of remarkable effort of rescuing all these uh, fellow soldiers and he was rescued himself by uh this Solomon Islander um who helped him get the message out, all this sort of stuff. Um 70 odd years later, uh the great nephew of that person who rescued JFK was killed by unexploded ordnance, and the, there was commentary to the, to the to the effect that it was that you know this was someone else's war. It's still killing our our young men, you know, in the prime of their life. So I think it's a the psychological nature of this UXO issue is huge. It's the, these are just littered across all of Honiara. It's not in the remote area. It's like literally in the middle of town, uh, and every yeah every three or four months is a new case. So. I don't know how you fix it up, but it needs to be done. Any other questions from those of us? We do have some questions online, but anybody else in the room interested in asking a question? We're sort of talking about a moment in time uh, and things will change probably in the near future or distant future. Should we just let the Solomons play Australia against China, against the US, and get what they can out of it and congratulate them for that. Well, well it's not about, I think that's kind of what we're doing at the moment in some ways. I mean, there's not, uh, yeah, Australians are pretty willing to, I mean, look, disappoint. So I mentioned the Pacific Games, big pet project of Manassas Sogavara. Uh, about 10% of Australia's aid budget to Solomon's last year was spent on the on the Games. Um so, you know, we're kind of already doing that a little bit. And you're right, time, time will move on and the politics of that country are so volatile typically that there's an election in about six months. Things could change. Sogavara could be gone. The opposition are composed largely of these very sort of, uh, you know, liberal internationalist sort of like classic uh, sort of political figures that, that we would see a bit more familiarity with in terms of their ideology and things like that. So there could be a situation in two or three years where this was just an episode and you're exactly right. There was some some gains and concessions. Um, so, look, I think that's not a bad point. <laughs> now, I've got a couple of questions online. So the first one from Tom Barber. Hi, Tom. He's a good friend of ours from Asia Pacific 4D, you might know. Um, he uh, asked about Sogavari's concerns about his own safety and whether that's a factor in Honiara pursuing a security relationship with Beijing, particularly um, whether or not it's motivating his desire to establish a Solomon Islands military, which has been in the news recently. And Australia's Defence Minister Richard Marle has said that Australia is very keen to help set up. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, I, I think I mentioned this, but I think the the security deal between Australia and uh, between Solomon's and China is like pretty significant. There's not many things like that in in the region, um, and there was a worry here that it was going to be you know set up a military naval base, something like that. Sogavara sort of guarantees that's not the case, but no one has seen the text of the the um, of the actual deal, so who knows? But 
what is clear is that he literally is scared about getting killed by a mob. He, he, um, Sogoro came to power after two coups. So the first time he came to power, there was a coup. He, uh, the prime minister was kidnapped. Uh, his, his predecessor was kidnapped at gunpoint. Sogoro got appointed the prime minister after. Uh, he came to power the second time after a coup knocked out one of the prime ministers, his predecessors. So he knows that there's potential at any time for that to happen in Solomon. It's extremely volatile when these sort of riots take place. The security is not particularly sophisticated. And I got this story in the book where I was reporting on the place and I'd literally just walked into the parliament. Like, you know, so that's the sort of stuff that can happen. Anyway, the security deal really, I think, uh, it didn't necessarily mean that the Chinese will come and protect him personally, but it certainly meant that the Australians are going to be much less reluctant to leave Solomons. They're still there with this peacekeeping operation sort of two years after that that violent episode. So, uh, yeah, I do think it's a factor and a pretty significant factor and one that, that isn't widely discussed is that um, this is largely a personal <laughs> personal safety concern for him as, as much as it is a geopolitical one. So we have a, a couple of other questions online that I'll pose to you and then maybe uh, we'll wrap up the session and we can get you behind the, the table with the books and signing some. Uh, but the, the first question uh, is about relations with Taiwan, Solomon Islands and Taiwan in 2023. Um, so whether you've got any insights into what the damage is, the fallout is, uh, and you did discuss that briefly in your presentation. Uh, but the second question is about whether there's any research on how this affects Chinese diaspora um, in Solomon Islands. I'm not sure whether there is a big Chinese diaspora, but uh, maybe you can, uh, whether you've got any sort of insight on that question. So just on the on the Taiwan um, relationship, basically that kind of fizzled. So what happened in the early days after the switch, there were some very uh, ambitious Taiwanese diplomats that, that thought, man, like we got to, like Malaita wants to become an independent state. We're running out of countries to be friends with. Let's kind of throw all our chips in, the, in with Malaita and hope that one day it emerges as a country of its own that's in favour of Taiwan. That relationship kind of didn't really eventuate. Uh, Premier Sadani isn't in power anymore. So that those um, sort of, uh, I guess, there's just not much of a live connection there currently as far as i'm aware um there could be some sort of more clandestine engagement but but not not that i'm aware of in terms of the chinese diaspora they're a significant part of solomon's economy part of solomon's culture there's about one or two percent of the population are ethnic chinese um solomon islanders uh they've been a big part of the community and the economy since like the 50s basically um that community does have a bit of a, a i guess a control of a lot of the economy for various reasons, partly that, um, you know, they set up businesses back in the 50s and capitalise on the move to independence a bit more than than some local Solomon Islanders were, had, had the opportunity to. There is, you know, it has been difficult for many people in that community the last few years. The Chinatown was destroyed. Mm. Uh, people died. Um, mm. The people in uh, Aoki, there's a, several Chinese ethnic Chinese-run businesses. These, these guys were operating in good faith and they... Had the government basically saying they're going to, you know, nationalise their business and that type. Of, it was it was really fraught for some time. Basically, very dangerous and quite scary for a lot of these individuals. So, um, you know, the, 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 the story around that is not a big part of the book, but it's it's mentioned briefly a little bit of the history of that diaspora community, why it's important, and yeah, some of these uh, challenges that they face is pretty pretty tough. 
Okay. Well, um, I would like to uh, to thank Ed and, and thank Diane for, for also joining us. But I also want to end by, again, congratulating you um, on the book. It is a great read. I recommend you all buy a copy, whether you're online as well, buy a copy, um, because it really does provide a lot of novel, I think, insights um, into uh, Solomon Islands. Uh, and it makes a real contribution, particularly, I think, to the conversations in Australia about the Pacific Islands and helps to improve our understanding of domestic politics and, and the sort of leadership and, and the roles that um, that can play uh, in within that border context of geopolitics. So congratulations on the book. It's um, been great to have you here and thank you again, Diane, for coming. So please join me in congratulating Ed uh, on his book. Thank you.